women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants Hello and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about change and the women who make it happen on the Princeton campus and beyond. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983, and my guest today is Melody Hobson, class of 1991. Melody is president of Aerial Investments, a money management firm in Chicago. She's vice chair of the board for Starbucks Corporation and a director of J.P. Morgan Chase. She was a longtime contributor to Good Morning America on ABC and is an analyst now for CBS News. Time magazine listed Melody among the 100 most influential people in the world a few years ago. Today, she's a sought-after voice on issues of financial literacy, diversity in corporate America, and the country's fraught dialogue about race. Melody, thank you very much for coming. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this. It's a real pleasure, I love Princeton, so this is great. (laughs) I'm very, very glad to hear it. You came to Ariel, as I understand it, when you were still an undergraduate student at Princeton, I think you were a summer intern here in about 1990, is that right? I was an intern in 1989. 1989. And then you went back, obviously, and you graduated. But uh, then you came back to Ariel, and you've been here ever since. I've had one job since I graduated in 1991. <laughs> and supposedly, according to Princeton, I'm the only person in my graduating class out of 1,100 people that has had the same work phone number since I graduated. Oh, that's incredibly impressive. So it's really crazy. <laughs> it's my 28th year in so, one job. Obviously, I've had lots of different roles and moved up the ranks. So it's not the same job from when I started. But it's been a long haul. Yeah. So anybody who memorized your phone number back when you were 21 years old, you're the only number that they have memorized now, right? right. Everybody else has to rely on their <laughs> phones for that. But what in the world did you know as a 19-year-old? What did you know about money when you came here? Nothing. And it's actually one of the things I talk a lot about when it comes to financial literacy. In high school in America today, you can take literally wood shop or auto as an elective and not necessarily take a class on money, which always leads me to ask people who whittles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, who cleans their own carburetor? No one. And yet those financial classes have could have a profound effect on the future of an individual from not only the perspective of themselves, but also their retirement, their ability to pass on wealth to heirs, et cetera. It's a big deal. But money is just not taught. You know, yes, some classes, some schools have home ec and things like that, how to write a check, how to read a utility bill. When I talk about things like the Dow, the NASDAQ, the S&P, understanding the markets, we don't get that kind of education. I certainly, I didn't have one. Yeah. I had to learn it by doing. Most people get that kind of education. If they have one, they've gotten it at home. So how did you end up here then? You didn't know much about money. Um, what made you decide to come to this firm and, 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 and plant your flag here? Well, first of all, I wanted to understand money. I grew up in a situation where money was typically an issue for us, and I wanted the security of understanding money. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's no accident that I work at Ariel, that I was actually born to do what I do, and it's a calling for me. I ended up coming here because I met um, John Rogers, class of 80, Uh before I graduated from high school. And we struck up a friendship. And ultimately, I asked if I could be a summer intern. And when I came to Ariel, I really discovered an entire new world. And I was really taken with it, Mm. this concept of building wealth and creating opportunities for people to send their kids to college or to retire comfortably or buy their first home or start a business. All of that felt so compelling to me and so important. 
And ultimately, this is what I decided I would do with my life. Yeah, yeah. Now, you say schools don't teach it, and I think that's incredibly true. I don't remember even getting any economics of any kind when I was in high school. But families typically don't either. They, you know, uh, I think you said somewhere they're more comfortable, a lot of parents are more comfortable talking about sex with their children than they are talking about money with their children. And I wonder if you've given any thought as to why that, what's 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 about money that we, we have so much difficulty talking about? Uh, the lack of knowledge is the number one mm -hmm. thing that keeps us from being comfortable in that conversation mm -hmm. with our children. And yes, the data does show when when uh, queried and and surveyed, parents list talking about sex and drugs higher in their comfort level than speaking to their children about money. And that really does come from their own money fears or their own lack of knowledge around key issues related to money. I really try to push parents on this. I find that children became the gateway drug to parents. And I mean that in the best way, that if you can teach a child about money, you de facto teach their parent. Uh -huh. And so that's a great way because most people don't want to admit what they don't know. Mm -hmm. They're embarrassed by that lack of knowledge and expertise. So as a result of that, um, really helping parents to understand that whatever money fears they have, whatever bad money habits they have, they are de facto teaching those things to their children because children are very, very observant and they're just passing those things along. Yeah. So when you when you when you came on board, were you well aware that you had a, a, a steep mountain to climb in 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 your learning curve? And you know, did you kind of plot out a a path for yourself as to how to pick it all up and teach yourself? Because you didn't go on and do a, a business degree, I think. I call Ariel my business school. I had, I said, why go study case studies when I have a real life one right here? When I started at the company, I recognized very quickly that I, yes, I had a very steep learning curve. And so one of the conditions I asked of John Rogers, who was at that time president of the company before me, I said, I want a training program. Because the one thing about potentially going to a Wall Street firm, and I was interviewing at some of those firms for analyst programs, was I knew I would be trained. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I need to be trained, and I need something formal that it will help me learn, and mm -hmm. I don't want to just come there and try to pick this all up. And he took that very seriously. He hired a person to sit with me to teach me about the markets and investing in a pretty comprehensive way. It was a real gift. His name yeah. was John Saul. Great. And um, I sat with John Saul for months and months and months and had him give me the basics and then query. And ultimately, I, of course, took the various tests that you need to be licensed in the industry. But that was a great way to start. But I also learned by doing. Mm -hmm. And I read a lot, and I still do, mm -hmm. to pick up. I think initially I was reading just for terminology and nomenclature and the jargon and things like that. But over time, I was reading for the insight. And now and I read so that I can have a point of view. Yeah, interesting. Well, point of view. Uh, I know you're not a portfolio manager exactly, but do you have a philosophy of how to deal with some of the volatile markets that we're confronted all the time with these days, it seems. Certainly, volatility has been back of late when you look at recent periods in the market. And we had an, an inordinately low level of volatility for a long time. Uh -huh. So, you know, whenever you see those kind of extremes, you know that we will have mean reversion. So I would say that my number one way of thinking about this is I'm going to quote a great Princetonian, Jack Bogle, mm -hmm. who started the Vanguard Group. And he says, in times of trouble, don't do something, stand there. He says, stand still. Yes. You don't do anything. 
You know, everyone says, don't stand there, do something. Yeah. He says, don't do something, stand there. And I think that's a really, really important point. You don't want to make knee-jerk decisions right. in times of volatility. Yeah. You should have a plan, and you should stick to that plan, which is the great thing about things like 401k plans, where you're investing in the stock, stock market or bond market mm -hmm. every two weeks with your paycheck. Yeah. You're buying at both highs and lows, and over the long term, you should get a better price. And so just the consistency of investing yeah. during all of the ups and downs is very, very important. Dollar cost averaging, I think. That's exactly right. Dollar cost averaging, it's a magical concept. It's exactly the right thing. And that dollar cost averaging, again, gets you to, to the better average cost over time. And I should say, You're I not, didn't learn this from my parents, by the way. <laughs> no. There's no timing the market. Mm -hmm. it does, there's no person who's good at that, despite some of the ideas that are out there. Mm -hmm. Some person may have gotten out at the right time, but they very rarely get back in at the right time mm -hmm. and vice versa. And so it's, some, it's a concept that I do not in any way prescribe to or believe in. You also got into philanthropy quite young. I think it's really extraordinary, in my view, to have a young person get into philanthropy. I, I, I believe one of the first things that you worked on was the Ariel Community Academy. And I'm wondering if this is linked to that passion of yours about financial literacy and, and, uh, and such. The first thing that I did when it came to philanthropy was when I was a senior at Princeton, oh. and I pledged my annual giving amount before I graduated for the next year. And I credit Princeton with really instilling that idea that you have to get back to your school. And many, obviously, people have done the exact same thing where you give your class amount. Yeah. And so I pledged $19.91. Oh. And they pushed really hard for us to yeah. have as high a participation level as possible. And they were very clear about saying it's not the amount, it's the fact that you'll give. Mm -hmm. And they felt that it would be habit-forming. Mm -hmm. I've never missed a year of annual giving mm -hmm. in 28 years that since I've been out of college. Mm -hmm. And that's something I say with pride because I do think Princeton was incredibly important to my development as a person, and I owe Princeton a lot. Mm -hmm. And so they should have some financial support from me on a regular basis. So that is really where it started. When I came to work at Ariel, John Rogers really did teach me a lot about the importance of giving back to others. And he said, give it at times when it's a stretch, mm -hmm. when it's a bit more than is comfortable for you. Mm -hmm. It's very important to not make it hard for people to ask you for things. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a really thoughtful um, way of thinking. And I, and I know the times when I have asked people for money, mm -hmm. how difficult it can be with certain types of individuals. Yeah. And I didn't want to be that person. Now, that doesn't mean I can always say yes by any mm -hmm. stretch of the imagination, but at least um, asking is hard enough. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, having a, a mindset of empathy and trying as hard as you can mm -hmm. to get to yes, I think is very important. So my, my philanthropy really started there. And I think that that concept of Princeton in the nation's service is something that that is is true about being generous and open. And generosity does not come just through money. Generosity can come with time or yeah. ideas. There are lots of ways to be a philanthropist. And so I don't think of myself as a philanthropist. I think of myself as a person who has an obligation to society because society has given me a lot. And that obligation means that I have to try to do whatever I can to make it better. The Ariel Community Academy has been a great um, program. Where at Ariel we started a school, and our mm -hmm. school has a saving investment curriculum. Oh, really? And we give every first grade class twenty thousand real dollars to invest, and the money follows them through their grade school career, because we didn't want to just admire this problem of 
there not being any financial education in schools. We wanted to do something to solve for it. Let me get this right. You give 20000 per class, and then the class invests in it over the course of their, their Eight, elementary correct. years? Correct. Eight years that they're in, in grade school or nine years if they go to pre-K. And then they divide it up between them when they go to ninth grade? or, or how They give $20,000 back to the incoming first grade class to make the program self-perpetuating. And then they um, make a class gift with half of the profits to something in their community so they can be very early philanthropists. And then they split the rest amongst their, themselves. And for every child that will put their money into a 529 plan to save for school, for college, or other educational expenses, we match whatever they've put in. We give another $500. And it's our way of teaching them not to walk away from the free money that they may be offered inside of a company one day mm. with a deferred compensation or defined contribution plan. That's actually, it's a fascinating model. Has it been picked up anywhere else that you know of? There's been there's been a lot of conversation about it around the country. We've been doing this now for over 20 years. We've just recently documented um, the curriculum mm -hmm. and have have created workbooks and mm -hmm. things like that for teachers to mm -hmm. use. But that took us many 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 years mm -hmm. to write. And um, it, but it's really good. We're really proud of the work that we've done. So we're hoping that more people request it off the shelf for free so that they can see the ways in which they can pick up this program. And they can do the catalog model like we have done with the real money, or they can do it without real money. Yeah. But the more, most important thing for us is that the children are learning over a long period of time. So unlike a stock market game where maybe you got the bad six weeks in the market, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that may turn you off to stock market investing for the rest of your life, right. or maybe you got the good six weeks and you think it's easy peasy, yeah. um, we're trying to show people, and young kids especially, time. We're trying to make the language of investing natural to them, just like you would teach a child a foreign language, and so that it comes easy, and it's something that they intuitively understand over time. And we give them real financial concepts, mm -hmm. supply, demand, opportunity costs, you know, elasticity, price elasticity, all of those things they start mm -hmm. to learn about as they get older, they get more and more sophisticated. And over time, they take more and more responsibility for managing the money in their portfolio. Fascinating. And where, where, where is this school? The school's on the south side of Chicago mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. It's, um, we have about, I think, close to 600 students. Um, most are African-American, mm -hmm. and most, 80% of our kids have free or subsidized lunch. Mm -hmm. So we're showing that kids who don't come from means or resources can become fluid in the language of investing. Yeah, very interesting. So actually, this, asks, this raises a question I wanted to ask anyway. Um, do you find that any groups have a, a greater difficulty um, looking at the hard problems of financial investment, I'm thinking of women in particular, or obviously lower income groups. I mean, are there particular teaching tools or teaching lessons, I think, that, that need to be applied to groups that aren't necessarily coming from a place of money or of money management? So overall, I think America's financial literacy needs to go up pretty dramatically. I think we wouldn't have had the financial crisis if we had been, had a more financially literate society. But that said, because of the reasons I've already talked about in terms of not learning about money and investing in schools, but that said, we've also found within populations, we've done a tremendous amount of work on investing by race, and we know that minorities tend to be further behind our white, white counterparts, even those who make the same amount of money. We tend to have a lower propensity to own stocks, and we tend to be less knowledgeable about the market. We asked why uh, our overall investment portfolios are, are smaller, and we found five reasons for that. 
uh, two-thirds of us don't invest because we say we don't know enough. So knowledge, there's a bunch of misinformation uh, out there that mm-hmm. that leads us down a bad path. Like mm-hmm. you have to have a lot of money to be an investor. Mm-hmm. And I really love all of these new programs that are coming into place, um, including some of the robo-advisors, et cetera, that are letting people start accounts for mm-hmm. a dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, so knowledge, misinformation, we have trust issues. Where mm-hmm. is Wall Street? Yeah. You know, <laughs> who sure. has my money? These are things that versus a passbook savings account, we can go and see the bank, yeah. even though we're not getting any return on that bank CD. So knowledge, trust, misinformation. We also have an exposure issue. Exposure issue. We're not likely to have be in a home where the stock market is discussed. Mm-hmm. We're not likely to inherit money. And so that can be an issue for us. So these this confluence of factors keeps us behind the eight ball. Mm-hmm. And I've been an evangelist about this in minority communities. The other area where we see um, differences are gender. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because with women, we tend to make our biggest financial decisions in times of our greatest emotional stress, mm-hmm. which is usually death or divorce. I was going to say divorce, yeah. Mm-hmm. Death or divorce are when we make the most important financial decisions that we can make. And so being ahead of that curve as, as you know, maybe uncomfortable as that might sound to some people is extraordinarily important. Yeah. And so, yes, around African-Americans, Hispanics in this country, really helping them to see the power of compounding, but also, um, and it's interesting, African-Americans are behind Hispanics in stock market ownership, which I never expected. Why do you think that is? Um, I think that um, I don't have a good answer for that. It was not expected because I thought a language barrier might create a bigger differential, but that did not prove to be true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then, as I suggested, gender is something that yeah. needs some attention. Now, the good news is more women are in the driver's seat. Um, I say more women are wearing the pants in the family. Mm-hmm. And more women are also, women are most, much more likely to inherit money than a man. So there will be this giant transfer of wealth that will happen in the next uh, decade or so with baby boomers uh, getting to the end of their time, the next Mm -hmm. two decades. And that will transfer a lot of wealth to women. From their parents? Yes, Uh, from their parents. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, on the topic of women, it's it's another issue that you've you've really grasped and have a lot of interesting things to say about it. Um, the amount of women or the, the, the percentage of women in in high levels of power or decision-making in corporate America is small and always has been small. But interestingly, it's not necessarily getting any bigger. I wonder if you can tell us kind of the shape of the problem uh, and, and, and where it's going from your point of view. Well, this is a sad one, I have to say, because I've done this for a long time and I fully expected that we would be making new strides as women in business. And yet, when you look at the numbers in corporate America, specifically women who are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, we've gone backwards. Yeah, so just in the last year, we've had a 25% decline in women leading S&P 500 companies from 31 last year to 24 this year. And that's not just a little blip, it doesn't feel. that. That's a, that's a significant drop. We've had some retirements. We've mm-hmm. had some women that have moved on. We've had a whole host of things that have happened, but I would have thought that more would have come behind, not mm-hmm. necessarily at those exact same companies, but in general. Right. And so that one was one that I have to tell you that has been very, very, very discouraging. But then if you drop down into some of the management ranks, while women make up half of the workforce, just 39% of management roles were filled by women in 2017. And the number of women in senior roles declined from 23% in 2017 to 21% this year. So again, we're going backwards, which is something that 
is really, really troubling. Troubling. Yeah. And we're going backwards at a time or, you know, after a long stretch of time, I think, where the, the, the conversation in, in the boardroom on, on television, <laughs> the advertising in corporate America is all about access and diversity and, 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 and making businesses more, more um, uh, female, among other things. Why? Where's the disconnect between walking and talking? Well, I love this quote, um, which will make sense. I always joke with people, I married Yoda's dad, <laughs> and my husband is George Lucas. And the line that is powerful is, do or do not, there is no try. Mm. There's a lot of try in corporate America around mm. diversity, and we haven't seen a lot of results. Mm. This is the one area in corporate America where trying counts yeah. versus every other area in corporate America. If you don't get results, you don't keep your job. Yeah. If you don't hit earnings, if you don't hit a manufacturing deadline, if you don't have client satisf satisfaction, all of those things would lead you out of work. Yeah. But in when it comes to diversity, there's for some reason this willingness to be okay with effort. And I think that in the case of diversity initiatives in corporate America, specifically Fortune 500 companies, as we like to say at Ariel, we've admired this problem long enough. We've admired it. Mm -hmm. And so now it's time to to do. Mm -hmm. I think part of what needs to happen is we need incentives that are clear, mm -hmm. because I do believe you get what you incent. Mm -hmm. And we need to make sure that people recognize that they will benefit financially and or um, be penalized financially for a lack of diversity amongst their teams, because that diversity is not about feel good mm -hmm. or look good or you know doing the right thing. It's actually about being in the best interest of the future of a 21st century com company. Sure. And to the extent that you don't embrace and understand that, I think you've got a problem. I think it's interesting what Jerry Brown has done in California by putting this, trying to get this law through that says a company has to have, public companies have to have at least one female director. And what shocks people is when you realize that out of um, 300, Fortune, 300 publicly traded companies in the state of California alone, 25% of them don't have women on their board Not even at a all. single one. Yeah. Not a single woman. And most people would think of California as being very progressive. Mm. And so even though Jerry Brown has said, it's not likely this idea of mine will hold up mm. and it will be contested in court and probably won't uh, withstand a legal fight, I think it's putting a stake in the ground around this issue in a way that it puts puts people on notice and I think empowers some of the employees, et cetera, to, to demand that kind of uh, diversity yeah. in representation. I think it can't just, just stop at gender because I think gender becomes the default yeah. uh, uh, de facto view of diversity. And I think diversity is truly that. It's gender, it's race, religion, um, sexual orientation, all of those things really do matter, yeah. again, in terms of uh, having a successful 21st century con company. Yeah. And you can't just have the boxes there that you check. Those people have to have voices. So I think inclusion trumps diversity. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd rather have less diversity and more inclusion if I have to choose the more diversity and less inclusion. And how are you differentiating diversity and inclusion in this? Inclusion is, means that actually your voice matters. You carry some weight inside of the organization. Yeah. So there are diverse organizations that I can point to, but they're not necessarily inclusive. Oh, I see. That's really interesting. Well, I, I mean, you are, you're an incredible demographic rarity, right? I mean, you are <laughs> you are a woman on several boards, and you've been on DreamWorks as well, right? But you're an African-American woman, too. How many African-American women are there on corporate boards in America? There are less than you would think, which is something that really shocks me. Um, I mean, it's just really scary. But I mean, the statistic that I give people, when I was chairman of the board of DreamWorks Animation, 
there were two black women who were chairs of publicly traded boards in the United States out of mm-hmm. thousands of publicly traded companies, Ursula Burns and myself. Mm-hmm. That statistic is so troubling, so shocking. Now, our company was sold to Comcast, and so we don't exist as a standalone business anymore, and so therefore I'm not there. And then Ursula Burns, of course, um, retired from Xerox. But this is just crazy to me. How is that possible? And while I'm very uh, confident about what I bring to the table and and confident about my work ethic and my ability to generate ideas, I'm not the smartest black woman in America. <laughs> I think there are a lot of really smart uh-huh. women. Yeah. And, and I powerful think- and uh, visionary and strong leaders. Correct. Is there a lean-in issue on, on anybody's part here? I, I'm referencing, obviously, your friend Sheryl Sandberg. Um, we found this in Princeton and through some of the internal research we've been doing about women taking on, and this is about women, women taking on leadership roles uh, within the university, that, that that their propensity to do it is actually dropping. And it's a big, big question. Um, I think that's a question. I think that Cheryl's work was pioneering in what she talked about. And Cheryl, as you suggested, is a good, good friend of mine. And I think that she had a unique point of view that did resonate with a lot of people because she tapped into something, which was around taking the risk. Mm-hmm. And I think that for some people that w- that is and was a real issue. Mm-hmm. I think there are also other issues and other factors that have to be considered that doesn't make it a right or wrong perspective around lean in or not. Yes, I've been in many rooms with some women what I where I've wished that they wanted to lean in more. I've been in rooms where women wanted to out, opt out, including my own company. I've also seen that with men. Mm-hmm. So, sure. Sure. you know, it hasn't been specific to women. But I've also, I would have to say, I think there are some structural barriers that have made it very hard for certain groups. Cheryl talks about in lean in, in consultation with me about the fact that she didn't try to crack the code on the issue of women of color. Mm -hmm. Because I said, that's not your experience Mm -hmm. and it's something that's gonna be very hard for you to understand the unique issues that we face that are very, very different than that. It's not just a gender issue for us. Mm -hmm. We have what we call double jeopardy. And um, I do believe people see race before they see gender. Mm -hmm. And so um, you've gotta get around both of those things. and, And I think that this is something that there aren't just lean in issues there. There are structural issues. But yes, Cheryl hit on and sparked a movement that was very, very important. It was a piece of a bigger puzzle. You have recently begun talking about race straight up and down in a national forum, which is has always been, I think, a bit of a third rail in polite society. What made you stand up and say, this is something I need to start talking about? Well, I remember when I did my TED Talk, they came to me and they said, you know, we wanted you to do a TED Talk for the 30th anniversary of TED. And I pondered two concepts. One was financial literacy and the other one was race. And I I wrote two different talks Mm -hmm. from beginning to end. I really was unsure about which one to do, but I felt I was in a very unique position to highlight issues of race. Now, I have to tell you, I did this before. I think things really lit up yeah. in our society. I think there had been an underbelly on race that existed my whole life, and it's always been there. But obviously, I think the circumstances have, have been magnified in recent years, so I was a bit early Um, But I felt that I was uniquely positioned to have the conversation because I was able to do it without being angry, to be as straight a shooter as I could be, to help people to understand what it's like if I could, and to challenge them to be more inclusive. I wanted to make sure I had a point. 
And my point was to ask people to be color brave, not color blind, because I was tired of people telling me that they didn't see race, but living in a monolithic world. And so I said, if I want you to see race, I want you Mm -hmm. to embrace it. I want you to be curious about it. Mm -hmm. I want you to invite people in your life who don't look like you, who don't think like you, who don't act like you, and who don't come from where you come from, and let them challenge you into being something better. Mm -hmm. And I quoted Scott Page's book, The Difference, the University of Michigan professor, and talked about him being the first person who'd come up with a mathematical formula for diversity that showed that if you were trying to solve a really hard problem, really hard You wanted diverse perspectives, even diverse intellects, to get at that problem. So I think that I just felt uniquely positioned because I'd been in so many rooms where I was the only one. Mm -hmm. And I did not believe that I was the only one because I was the best or brightest. I knew how hard I'd worked, but I also felt that there were lots of other people who were like me who, for for whatever reasons, didn't have the stars aligned to be in the room. And I wanted to at least use whatever power and influence I had to be able to shine a light on the issue to try to at least get people to think about the lives that they lead and at least challenge them, not in any way to suggest that they're racist or they're not inclusive, but just to try to, if in ever so carefully, push them to to look around and observe and see if they could do better. Yeah. I think a lot of us felt when Barack Obama was elected that it was going to be a turning point on race in this country. Um, that the, the entire dialogue would change. And sadly, that didn't happen. It was a milestone, of course, but it wasn't necessarily a whole new world. And in some ways, things look worse now than they did before. I'm wondering if you felt it was misplaced hope on our part, uh, just naivete, or, or, or how you, what's your take-home lesson on the Obama years? Well, I'm going to parse that answer for you first by saying how great it is that we have Michelle Obama, who is a Princetonian as well. But I'll start by saying that it was profound. It was mm-hmm. a profound moment in our society and in the world. Mm-hmm. It was one that I'm glad that I lived to see. It was one that was deeply moving mm-hmm. for me, and I know so many people. And I just kept thinking about all the black and brown kids in inner cities around the country who could say, someone who looks like me is in the White House. So that, let's start with that. And when Michelle, in her Democratic National Convention speech, she said, I live in a house built by slaves, I still tear up when I think about that. So that is huge. I think black people knew it wasn't the be-all, end-all. It wasn't going to, in a minute, change everything. I remember my husband and I debating that. And I was like, it's going to be a long call. <laughs> so we knew it wasn't going to you know, be the game changer, but it was going to be extraordinarily significant. And that doesn't take away from the power of the moment in any way. What I do believe is in the one of the laws of physics is for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And some of what we've seen in recent years is that equal and opposite reaction. Mm -hmm. And I think we're living with some of that right now. It's incredibly painful and discouraging, but it also gives you a great deal of resolve around what is right Mm -hmm. and important. And I love, 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 I even made it my Christmas card one year, the quote from Barack Obama who said, there's never been anything false about hope. Hope is extraordinarily important to any society, and it's it's very unique to America. We are hopeful people. We're optimistic. And so I look to tomorrow always thinking it's going to be a better day, maybe a little bit in that Scarlett O'Hara mode. (laughs) Tomorrow is another day. And I think that that's the only way to be and live. But we have to do our part. We can't just hope. We have to actually try to affect change. We have to use our power for good. We have to make sure that if we have beliefs and values that are not being uh, demonstrated in the society, that we fight for them. 
And so I think for all that has happened, at least one of the heartening things is to see people stick up for what is right against some of the forces that perhaps don't want to um, move us along in a progressive way. Well, Melody, with that, I, I think we're out of time, and I, I should say thank you very, very much again. I appreciate you giving us this much of your time. And I want to thank our producer, Danielle Alio, as well. And uh, to our audience, say I do hope you will download again to listen to more conversations with some of the most extraordinary women uh, who have come from and come through Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google Podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.